More money for cyber warfare. Will it become the MOD's most important budget item? Why America put British generals in the B team in the Iraq war? Our man in Baghdad tells us the full story. America goes to the polls, but is the FBI calling the vote? The Russian aircraft carrier? Can it really swing the war for Assad? And poppies? Why is there always a row? Hello there, welcome once again to SITREP with me, Tim Cooper, joined in the studio by the BFBS defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Britain's cyber warfare budget has this week got to one got a £1.9 billion increase. That's put it up with the top budget items in the Ministry of Defence. So what's happening here? Well, let's talk to Dr Madeleine Carr of Cardiff University. Welcome to the programme, uh, Dr Carr. Well, where does this money go, first of all? Well, it goes on uh, a lot of initiatives that the UK government has outlined in the uh, recently released National Cybersecurity Strategy. One of the big initiatives uh, was a National Cybersecurity Centre, which has been established as part of GCHQ. It it, uh, began operating um, in September of this year. And, uh, yeah, that's that's a kind of focal point for our cybersecurity activities. So what does it give in way of uplift of capability in the cyber sphere? Well, it's I mean there's a there, there are a number of funds and and kind of channels that have been focused with this money. Part of it has been on education, on on addressing the kind of deficit that we have in skilled people in the UK, which is the case for for a lot of developed countries like like ours. Part of it has gone to um, a innovation fund, a, a defensive defensive cyber innovation fund, which will fund research, and um, and part of it has gone to to yeah the the National Cybersecurity Centre. The, the word cyber is the latest buzzword. We have them all the time surrounding the information technology area, don't we? You know, digital is another one that people struggle to explain. In broad brush terms for the uninitiated, what are we talking about with cyber here? Well, that's a really good point. And cyber is one of those words that sort of means everything and means nothing at the same time. But from, from a UK defence perspective, um, the issues are really ensuring that the UK has a safe information infrastructure, that it that it's a place where uh, our critical infrastructures like utilities and um, and, uh, you know, communications infrastructure can can run safely and, and without being being interfered with, where people and their kind of individual information and data is is safe and secure, where it's a safe place to do business and where we can defend ourselves against attacks uh, against our, our information infrastructure, wherever they come from. So it's much broader than just cyber elements within defence. It's the whole infrastructure of the country, isn't it? And Christopher Lee, let's bring you in on this point. I mean, that is the key with cyber warfare, as it were. Um, it is not just an attack on the military. It's an attack on a nation, its business capabilities. It's the explanation, if you wanted one, of future security anxieties. And that is that it is advancing probably faster than any other system within all sorts of armies, air forces, navies and intelligence gathering operations and also it's unlike things that normally take you into that next stage of warfare capability Um, it's easy to update and it's easy to bring in a new system, whereas, you know, you've got a tank, you've got a tank, you've got a tank, and a ship, a ship, a ship, and you, you're, you, therefore your capability is more the same. But uh, cyber, 
um, can not only change quickly, but it could take people who might consider you one day as an enemy, it can take them by surprise. And I think, and it's only just beginning in that sense. We, you know, we, we're, we're getting towards the sort of concept of, can you really do that? And the answer is, so far, yes, you can do it. It's frightening, isn't it, Dr Madeleine Carr? Um, I mean, we've already heard anecdotal evidence of the KGB, or whatever they're called these days, going back to typewriters. Some departments in the Pentagon using typewriters and hard copy so that their espionage information, for example, can't be accessed. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, even if you think of a kind of popular culture reference, when you look at a you know a TV program like The Wire, where you know the the drug dealers all use those disposable phones, the 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 understanding that uh, the conveniences that come with digital technology are also some of the real vulnerabilities, and that it it, it just exponentially more difficult to protect information and to conduct affairs in, in, in secrecy is really one of the defining characteristics of this. And when you put that into a, a defense setting, then yes, I mean, those vulnerabilities are, are you know, very, very severe. Madeline, it's, it's, it's another aspect of this, which is it, it brings in Le Carre and people. Uh, it's changing, isn't it, the old ways we used to think of in, intelligence gathering in capitals. Um, you may still have a whole bunch of uh, uh, sort of spies around doing the human int intelligence gathering uh, and, and loitering and having dead letterboxes. But cyber, to some extent, is, has overtaken that. It's, it's not made them useless, but it, it's overtaken them, and they're subservient to that sort of the modern way of doing things. And everybody has to accept it now. If you think about it, 15 years ago, nobody knew about Google. It's now a verb. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, the, the pace of change is phenomenal, and to keep up with that is is a challenge for everyone. I think the point about the intelligence is a really interesting one and a, and a really good one because, yes, the intelligence community is, is you know, relying, as everyone is, on, on gathering information through digital means, which you know, keeps agents out of harm's way and, and, of course, has a much bigger footprint. There there does still seem to be, though, that, that kind of irreplaceable need for for uh, human engagement that that can't be replaced by, by any other means. But more and more that is happening online as well. And, you know, the kind of advances in social engineering, these kind of practices of getting people to uh, relinquish passwords or, or access to to protected systems over the phone or even in person are, are you know that that's becoming a, a bigger and bigger part of in, intelligence practices as well. Hey, listen, I've got a challenge for you. Uh, next time we're doing a program like this, and we're thinking that perhaps you want to get in touch with Madeline Carr, uh, we won't. The challenge is for you to hack in to the BFBS system <laughs> and find out what we're doing. I know a three-year-old that can probably do that. Dr. Madeline Carr, thanks ever so much indeed for joining us from Cardiff University. I'll sit rep today. Thank you. Back in 2003, Britain sent one of its most highly regarded diplomats to Baghdad. So Jeremy Greenstock had been the UK's permanent representative to the United Nations. So the government decided he was the right man to be Britain's lead administrator in Iraq in the aftermath of the coalition invasion. In 2005, he wrote a book about his experience. The Foreign Office said he couldn't publish. After seven years of the Chilcot inquiry into what went on in Iraq, Sir Jeremy has now published Iraq. 
the cost of war. And so Jeremy Greenstock joins us now on the line. So Jeremy, you don't think that Britain had much influence at the time, do you? It uh, had more influence than any other external uh, factor on the Americans, but when the American superpower goes to war, it goes to war on American bases and with American advisers. So we uh, were quite used to that, actually, knowing the Americans well. Uh, but when it comes to an intervention like this, uh, it's pretty starkly clear that we are junior cousins. And junior cousins that have to go along with their narrative of how things are going to pan out. Well, we, we have our debates and discussions with the Americans in private. We don't bring it out in public. Uh, at the time. I've brought out some of it uh, a dozen years on. But um, they know what to do with their own power projection and they're quite jealous of having the right people in the room when they're making their big decisions. And indeed, there are a lot of uh, other Americans who get out. It can get quite political and ideological within the White House when these things are being done. And that was particularly so of the Bush administration, I think. So let's go back to 2003. Britain, a junior partner, as you say. But what influence could we wield and what influence did we wield? Well, we um, were very keen to have an international approach to Iraq and not a unilateral one. And I think that without the British influence in the summer and autumn of 2002 the Americans would not have come to the United Nations to ask for a resolution to uh, compel Saddam Hussein to give up his weapons of mass destruction and to let in the UN inspectors uh, pursuing WMD. So that was one clear factor. When it came to the invasion itself, the military planning was done by US CENTCOM uh, under General Tommy Franks, and we had to muck in behind that if you remember, we were asked to go in, uh, prepare to go in first through Turkey, through the north, and then at the last minute in January 2003, that was changed, and a lot of attention had to be paid to changing the Ministry of Defence and the armed forces into that profile from the south, which took a bit of a, uh, an emphasis off the planning for the post-invasion phase, where we were partly cut out through having our channels to the State Department and not to the uh, Pentagon, and it was the Pentagon that was running things. So uh, we found that quite difficult. If Britain had been at CENTCOM, as you say, with General Tommy Franks and had a hand in that discussion, would things have been different? Uh, we, we were consulted. The answer to that is no, not much. Uh, I think if the, if the timing of the war had been later, which I think would have been much better for the international situation... And we had had time to turn round the army to the south and talk about the post-invasion situation, uh, then it might have been a bit better. But the fundamental decision was made by the Americans to do the post-invasion phase with a limited number of troops. I mean, 200,000 troops may seem quite a lot, but you remember that the army chief, General Shinseki, had suggested 500,000 troops were necessary for Iraq and he was much closer to the real truth than I think uh, uh, the Secretary of Defence, uh, Rum Donald Rumsfeld, was and his uh, 
is number two, Paul Wolfowitz. He ridiculed uh, Shinseki, but Shinseki was right on that. He was right on that, and history has shown that the decision not to invest as much time, thought and energy into the post-war phase was very, very wrong. Have America learned from this in your assessment? I think to some extent, but I don't think that one era learns that much from another. Different circumstances apply different politics is at play uh, I recall General Charles Guthrie uh, when he was Chief of the General Staff, Head of the Army uh, going to Washington in the mid-90s and saying look guys, we've had quite a lot of experience in our colonial history in Northern Ireland uh, in the colonies, etc of looking after nations after they've turned round of dealing with rebellions on the ground can we share some of this with you as you come into the single superpower stage as more company, and more countries challenge us, uh, things go wrong? Can we share some of our experience? The answer was, no, we don't do nation building. Uh, four or five years later, uh, Ambassador Paul Bremer was in Baghdad doing nation building. Uh, General Ricardo Sanchez was uh, in charge of the army in Iraq doing nation building. General John Abizaid, uh, who followed Tommy Franks as commander CENTCOM, was doing nation-building. I think they should have been listening to Charles Guthrie at an earlier stage. I have two more questions, really, and one of those is a difficult one, but if there was one key thing that didn't happen that you wished at the time or subsequently had happened, what would that have been? Well, certainly... Uh, I would put security first. I wish they hadn't done those two decrees, disbanding the army and uh, outlawing the Ba'ath Party. We had, if we weren't going to do comprehensive security in Iraq, the Iraqis had to do it. But we denied ourselves and the Iraqis the means to put security first, which is the first duty of any government to have a secure base on which you then run the economy and run civil society. Uh, so that's one thing. I would also have wanted to ensure that we invested in the security of Iraq much earlier on. I believe that President George W. Bush should have had as his mission, and I say this in the book, not the ousting of Saddam Hussein, but the creation of a secure Iraq without Saddam Hussein in it. And those are two different missions. And uh, he would have kept General Tommy Franks uh, in theatre for, say, a year after the invasion was over and would not have handed over the military responsibility until the civil uh, situation was containable. Uh, I, I wish we'd had a chance to, to make that point at the time. And finally, that leads us on to where we are today. We see Iraqi forces, Iraqi special forces, trying to rid the streets of Mosul of the so-called Islamic State as we speak. We've seen turmoil for the last decade. Your assessment of the current situation in Iraq and what happens next, what is most likely? Well, I've been quite impressed by the behaviour and attitude and performance of the Iraqi armed forces around Mosul, but they haven't yet got to the really difficult bit, which is the expected street-by-street -street fighting, dealing with the booby traps and everything that's been set up to oppose them, and the last days of ISIS in, in Mosul, which will be highly dangerous for the population of Mosul. So there's a, a lot of 
blood and tragedy to come there. When that is over, and I'm saying when, not if, I think it, it's fairly inevitable, particularly with the help of uh, sophisticated outside helpers like the Americans uh, in there, there will be a phase where the uh, security forces of our countries, the police forces, the intelligence forces, will need to be highly vigilant, vigilant as ISIS tries to get uh, its own uh, recompense for what they suffered in Iraq and maybe Syria to come. There will be incidents on the street. I think they will be attacking the UK as uh, other countries. Uh, we have to look after, after ourselves very carefully. That does need to be watched. So, Jeremy Greenstock, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, listening to that was our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Um, echoing what many people think certainly about ISIS there, but I'm, I'm more interested to get your take, Christopher, on the post-IS landscape within Iraq, particularly in reference to Turkey. Turkey, Turkey wants to get into this war, that's all this mini drive against Mosul, um, and it does partly because it, it wants to get into what happens afterwards. You know, ISIS go, where do they go? Uh, and they're not just going to sit in a dugout somewhere. They spread out, and, and, and Turkey wants to be part of getting at them. Um, it wants the authority, but there's more to it than that. Um, Turkey wants to get at the anti-Turkish government elements that are in Iraq. So we're this talking... This is the PKK. Yeah. And they are, are Turk separatists. They've been uh, separatists for decades now. Also into the Kurdistanis who live in that area, and they're sort of ethnic groups. They want to get into that lot and be part of it, right? Um, now, Iraq says, no, you're not coming into Iraq to go up against the PKK. We're not having a second war going on. Turkey says, yes, we are. Now, what we could see, that when the whole thing about Mosul is, is, is ironed out, a war breaks out between Turkey and Iraq, a, a, a proper war. And this is at the level of the Russian intervention in, in the Ukraine. And that shows what is happening in the Middle East, not just bonfires, but raging infernos in different countries. Still to come, who really holds the power in America? Is it the president or not? And the poppy, yet another row on who wears it and when. Now then, next Tuesday, it's the big day. Not Britain's Got Talent or any of that. No, America gets to vote. I'm, I'm bringing it down a bit. But Trump or Clinton, Clinton or Trump, we've, we've had a lot of it. Probably too much for many people to take. It's the most bad-tempered campaign the White House has ever witnessed. And now maybe the most powerful man in the United States, the director of the FBI, is the most influential figure on the outcome of November the 8th. Let's cross now to Cedar City and speak to Michael Stathis, who is the professor of politics at the University of Southern Utah. Obvious question, who's going to win? <laughs> uh, if I knew that, I could make an awful lot of money in Las Vegas between now and next week. Um, it is too close to call. Uh, the latest poll that uh, is up this morning, the New York Times uh, CBS poll, favors Clinton 45 to 42. But clearly, that's within the margin of error, which means Halloween could uh, come back next Tuesday. <laughs> 
Um, I just want to follow up on that, because we're watching it from this side of the pond, obviously, and we're, frankly, the majority of Brits, quite appalled by what's been going on. Are you in America aware of how the rest of the world views this electoral campaign? Well, I am, because that uh, is my uh, particular uh, area of study. Uh, but uh, most Americans are not concerned with uh, uh, views from outside the country. But um, uh, there are some that, uh, you know, we do look at. Uh, for instance, um, uh, you know, we're interested to see, uh, you know, just who Vladimir Putin uh, uh, favors or disfavors Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who uh, fairly clearly favors, uh, face, favors Trump, and we're concerned about that. Uh, we would like to know um, a little bit more about some of the other leaders uh, in the world and how they look at uh, the possibility of a Trump uh, a presidency. And uh, it, uh, from my point of view, uh, most of the people that seem to be uh, pro-Trump uh, probably fall into what uh, Hillary Clinton called uh, a basket of deplorables. Um, well, it, it might not be that strong, but clearly some of the people favoring Trump are of, shall we say, dubious reputation. Um, and uh, that's a little discomforting here. It is. I mean, it is very interesting the world opinion is you were touching on there. And a lot of world leaders, from what you're intimating there, really aren't coming out in favor one way or the other openly. Well, uh, for me, I have a great interest in um, Prime Minister uh, Theresa May, and uh, uh, she's been rather coy um, uh, about this, but uh, most of the comments that I can discern uh, seem that she's certainly not a fan of Donald Trump, but she's not ready to make a positive comment about uh, 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 Hillary uh, uh, Clinton. But um, um, others have said that at the very least that uh, they could probably work with Trump uh, uh, Xi Jinping in China um, um, has made favorable comments. Uh, Rodrigo uh, Duterte uh, in the Philippines, uh, well, uh, uh, for good or for ill, he's been favorably compared to Trump. Uh, that's not particularly good news. And a number of leaders in Eastern Europe um, uh, or prominent political figures have been fairly open uh, in being pro-Trump and uh, anti-Clinton. Uh, anti and this is representative, I think, of kind of a, well, what has been described as, uh, uh, what, a general populist movement around the world. And what that means exactly uh, is, is unclear, except that it seems to be ultra-nationalistic, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, anti-liberal, and, well, uh, uh, ultra-right uh, uh, generally. Yeah, so, i tell you something. Hello, Mike. Um, i tell you, if uh, the Europeans... You've got uh, Milos Zeman, the Czech Republic. Um, he mm -hmm. actually sort of says Trump is a very good guy, and so does Viktor Orban, of the, the, who is the Prime Minister of Hungary. And these are not lightweights. These are quite heavyweights. The most important thing is they're in NATO. They're NATO, NATO countries. Hey, listen, can I just tell you, because I know in Cedar City it's a bit vague about when you get to numbers. Um, I, can I tell you how it's, how it's going to be done? Who's going to win? As we know, in America, it's not the, it's not the total number of people. Okay, who who decides right. going to win? Mm -hmm. It is the so-called electoral college. Each state has a number of uh, votes for the electoral college. There are five hundred and thirty-eight votes in the United States. The winner, the winner, needs to get two hundred and seventy of those five hundred and thirty-eight. Clinton, at the right. moment, I've done the arithmetic. She's probably got two hundred and forty-seven. Trump's got one hundred and eighty. So Clinton needs twenty-three. So what does she do? 
she wins Florida because Florida's got 29. So I will tell you, as soon as Florida comes in, it always comes in last and uh, anyway, but as soon as Florida comes in, it'll be, it'll, be, it'll be Clinton, and she will have it by four votes. That's all she needs. She's, she's, she's the president. Well, at, at our house, we have already voted, and uh, we are hoping for um, an early evening. We'd like to go to bed early uh, with uh, things uh, already determined. That's not likely. I think this one is going to go late, but I think you're quite right. Um, what happens in Florida uh, uh, is likely to determine the election. But right now, um, it's uh, leaning towards Clinton. Um, uh, and another state that is really going to be a key to this is Pennsylvania. Uh, mm-hmm. If uh, Hillary, who has the lead, uh, actually a, f- a fairly comfortable lead in uh, Pennsylvania, if she can hold Pennsylvania and then throw in uh, Florida, then um, um, she's, uh, she's going to win. The avenue to victory for Trump is a very, very narrow road, uh, uh, and uh, it depends on a number of things happening in his favor. So many, in fact, that it's almost unlikely that he's going to be able to run the table and uh, and pull it out. But uh, in American politics, one thing that we've learned um, is that uh, uh, anything can happen, and certainly very odd things can happen. Well, just ask Dan Quayle about that. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Absolutely. Michael Stasis, for joining <laughs> us here today. <laughs> Great you, to talk Jim. to you as ever. Thanks so much indeed. Um, let's move on now. And Christopher, the Russian aircraft carrier Admiral Kuznetsov has joined Russia's Syria flotilla in the eastern Mediterranean. There's speculation that it will lead to a deciding bombing campaign for President Assad for eastern Aleppo. But will it? OK, this is all speculation, OK? <laughs> this is really good stuff, therefore. Listen, um, the, I've been watching the, the, the Kuznetsov as it's come out from the northern fleet that's above Norway. Yeah. Down the North Sea, English Channel, into the Mediterranean. Uh, biggest aircraft carrier, the big the single aircraft carrier of Russia, flagship, etc. The one thing it hasn't done, nobody's been flying aeroplanes on and off. When you go into a big operation, your flight deck commanders are saying, I want aeroplanes coming off uh, night and day, because if we're going into battle conditions, that's what they've got to do. I haven't seen any newsreel, I haven't seen any other film that says they suggest they're flying. So when it joins the flotillas, it just now has, with two tugs alongside it, which suggests that it might be having problems with the engines. Uh, I just wonder if it is the decisive uh, vessel, the decisive asset that so many commentators have been saying. It ain't flying. If you don't fly, you haven't got an airfield. If you haven't got an airfield, you've got no planes. True, but we've seen, I think there were four MiGs lined up on it uh, in a very, you know, picture-friendly way as it steamed down the English Channel the other day. They could just be there for, for props, couldn't they? Well, they this, wanted us to see them. They wanted us to see them, exactly. The MiG-29s as well. Yeah. Even I not, might, might be able to buy one of those second-hand. Oh, I've seen one of them fly. They yeah. make a great time. Listen, anyway. I'll tell you something else that's going to be important. Tomorrow, the <laughs> right. Russians are opening the humanitarian channel through Aleppo. Yeah. That could be the prelude to the big Syrian assault, because once that's done, you've cleared out an area that you don't want to uh, you, you don't want to get in the way, and so watch the Syrians rather than the Russians. Just one final point on this aircraft carrier, though, because it could be there as an alternative landing strip for planes already in the theatre. No, 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 because well, I mean, because 
in, they're not from Navy, Navy pilots, and they've got ah, right. like arrest of hawks and things like that. Go throw out a sort of uh, a bag of uh, sand, but nothing more than that. OK, fair one. That seemed logical to me, anyway. Um, let's, let's move on to our final point today, and it's the time of year when everyone starts putting on their poppies. But now we have FIFA saying England, Scotland and Wales footballers mustn't wear them because it would break the FIFA rules that nothing should appear on shirts or even armbands that isn't political. Christopher Lee, your thought? I mean, it's, it's daft that it's ever even a discussion point in a way, isn't it? Because uh, this happened in 2011 and in 2011, England-Scotland game, I think, and it mm. ended up by wearing poppies uh, on, on, on the armbands. FIFA has said, no, you can't do this. I'm all for FIFA on this. Somebody's got to have the rule book. OK, yeah, no, got, no. You know, it was voted as a rule book and said you can't do it if it's political. Yes. Personal. Personal. Yes. Uh, a religious or commercial uh, emblem. OK, given that... You've got to decide what's political. Yes, but how come they allowed the Irish football team to wear a slogan on their shirts praising the Easter Uprising 100th anniversary? Now, that's political, surely. FIFA didn't, no. Well, who did? Uh... Nobody knew until there was, a, there was a camera on it. It was a big thing, but nobody knew. It wasn't... You see, nobody in Dublin informed FIFA what they were about to do. Well, perhaps that's where the problem lies, that the FA did get in touch with FIFA. Well, what the FA has now said, that they're going to wear the armbands anyway. It's not a question of defiance. It's just a question of this is not going to get sorted out, so we're going to do it and argue about it later. Uh, anyway, in these games, you can't be reduced points mm. as a punishment. Christopher, thank you very much indeed for being here with us as ever. Kate Jabot is back next week, uh, so do join in with Kate if you can for that. But in the meantime, from me and Christopher, thanks very much indeed for listening. Goodbye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.